Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is taking us through the new series on prayer. This is a part of the 14 characteristics of a healthy church that Heath had talked on in a previous episode. Today's talk is called Believing in Prayer. If you're in Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end to find out how you can connect with Unity Baptist Church. James chapter 5. We're going to get another sermon from what the apostles or the disciples called old camel knees because of his propensity to pray, and that's from James, half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 13 to begin with as you're turning there. When I was a young man, and I mean like freshly married, fresh out of Bible college, moved to Florida and was looking for a job to sustain myself while going through seminary, back then when you looked for jobs, you looked in a newspaper. Remember those? And uh, you looked for the jobs there, and I saw an ad there that looked very enticing. It said things like, you can make $1,000 a week just working 20 hours. You knew one of those things. but. I was 22, so I went and answered that just to see what it was about, and I found myself in the middle of just kind of an industrial area, and some guy with a a garage and a small office attached to it, and I learned how you make $1,000 a week, as they said, and it was selling Kirby vacuums. Okay, now, if you ever, if you, you know of Kirby vacuums, it is a good vacuum, right? Now, they weigh two and a half tons, that's why they have their own drivetrain, but Kirby vacuums are good, and he began to romance this product, and he had to, because you're going to shell out $1,000, and this is like in the 90s here, mid-90s, you're going to shell out like $1,000 for this Rolls-Royce of vacuums. And so he began to tell us and show us how well the vacuum is able to just, you know, suck up the dust and how it can be converted into a shampooer. And he, he showed us a whole list of attachments that come with a Kirby vacuum, more attachments than devices Batman had on his utility belt. I mean, you could transform this device supposedly into a babysitter for your kids. It'll wash the dishes. It'll clean your car. I don't know. It, it did everything. So he did everything he could to show us why somebody should spend $1,000 on a vacuum when I went out and spent $25 on one at a garage sale. Why should I believe in this vacuum enough to spend that kind of money and bring it home and use it? Okay. I say that to say this morning, I'm going to give you a piece of pure propaganda. I'm just going to, I'm telling you right now, I want to sell you on something. I want to extol its virtues. I want to show you its value in every situation of life. I want to show you the power of this thing so that in hopes you will believe me so that you'll go home and that you will use this product for yourself. The difference is it isn't going to cost you $1,000. We're talking about prayer this morning. So in James chapter five, we're gonna see number one, that prayer is powerful in every situation of your life. There's not a specific situation in life that anyone is in where they should not be communing with and talking with God. Verse 13, he says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, in the context of prayer, James is talking about physical suffering. And then he associates physical suffering with prayer because that's when we pray. What do we often most pray for? We pray because it's socially expected. We pray, for, we pray at mealtimes, right? We, we pray and then uh, right before we go to bed, we'll go with our kids and we'll, we'll pray. Then now I lay me down to sleep prayer, that depressing prayer that talks about dying and you frighten your kids. You know, we pray at those times. We also pray when we get hurt and God squeezes us with life and we go, help me God. That's when we typically pray. I mean, look at what we pray for. Look at our Wednesday night prayer, you know, prayer folders that we give out. What is, what's on our prayer list? Is it great calls for revival, great calls for evangelism, all the people that we're witnessing to, the people that we're discipling? No, what's, what's 99.9% of our prayers? It's talking about suffering. It's talking about sickness. It's talking about difficulty. Is it any wonder then that God deliberately brings pain into our life, if nothing else, to make us to call out to God and remember him? And so this morning, James asks us, is any among you suffering? Now, suffering in this word, this Greek word for suffering does not refer to sickness. 
It's not talking about somebody who's laid up in a hospital. Suffering here is a word that means somebody who has suffered physical and or emotional harm, typically goes with it. Somebody who's suffered harm with evil intention on behalf of somebody else. Somebody is hurting you. In this case, in the church, he's probably going, is anybody among you persecuted? Is anybody suffering here? Now, there's probably not a lot of persecution here. I don't see too many bruises. I'm looking out over the congregation. I don't see too many of you guys bruised. I don't see any bandages around anybody's heads. Uh, but Christians, we suffer in a very different way this week, don't we? In fact, quite often, if you, if you were to express your beliefs or your support for the overturn of Roe v. Wade, are some of your friends gonna turn on you? Are some of these people turning violent, threatening death, and graffitiing things, and breaking out windows, and, and storming Supreme Court justices' houses? Yeah, we, we stand today a, a genuine threat of physical harm for what we believe, and even more so there in the early church. So he says, anyone among you suffering, you've suffered at the hands of evil men, what are we supposed to do? Pray. Christians aren't those that retaliate. When things don't go our way in life politically, when things don't go our way in life in your job, when things don't go the way we want it to in the church, when things don't go the way we want it to at home or with our kids or with one of our neighbors, do we retaliate? Do we revolt? Do we throw things through windows? Do we graffiti things? Do we, do we avenge ourselves? No, that's not how Christians respond to when people harm us or cause us some kind of distress. What do we do? Romans 12, 19 says, beloved. He's talking to believers here. Here's how believers handle when you have suffered harm or wrong from somebody else. He says, never avenge yourselves. Is that pretty inclusive in your Bible? Never? There's never a situation in life where God's gonna say, man, I can't get to this. You know, I really hope Mike gets to that because I can't write the cosmic scales of justice unless Mike steps in and gets revenge here. He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, this is, this is Bible he's saying, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is something that belongs to God. It doesn't belong to man. Because a lot of times when we want vengeance, we may be ourselves the ones in the wrong. When we take vengeance upon ourselves, it's an acknowledgement that we believe that we know better than God. God isn't acting fast enough, so I will. I obviously being omniscient, I being perfectly holy, I being perfectly just, know, to, know how to mete out judgment against those who have harmed me, and so I will take vengeance. So God says, no, don't play your own God. Never take vengeance out, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and God promises what? I will repay. Will God repay evil? He always does. It may not be in your timing, may not be in a way that you understand, may not be something that you even see, but God promises to repay. So believers are those that when we're suffering, we've suffered evil treatment on behalf of other people and harm, even persecution or beatings. It says we don't take, take it out in vengeance upon one another. Rather, we do the opposite of vengeance Rather than playing the part of our own God, we humble ourselves to the God that is able to mete out that judgment in a just and righteous way. It's what 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7 is saying. Rather than avenge, he says, humble yourselves. Remember, we talked a while back about humble means to admit defeat. I am underneath God. I acknowledge that God is the one who has, if you will, he's more powerful than me, he's wiser than me, I'm gonna leave it to him. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's strong enough to take care of those who are bullying you. So that at the proper time, God's time, not ours, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Why should I pray to God? Because he hears and he cares. Why should I pray to God? Because he has the mighty hand. Why should I pray to God? Because he promises to act. When you're feeling burdened by life, you're feeling wounded by people, we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trust him with the outcome. We pray, and it says that when we pray and do that, we are casting our cares on him. It means to roll a heavy burden off of ourselves. Imagine a fellow who's uh, he's carrying a heavy sack of grain. We can carry that for a little bit, can't we? And we're meant to until we get over to our donkey and then what do we do? We cast it on him. We roll off that burden that we're not meant to carry very long onto the beast of burden who is able to carry it. In this particular case, who we roll off our weights to is God. And there's some of us today who are burdened down with things we're not supposed to carry. Are we supposed to carry the weight of vengeance upon ourselves that I've gotta make this thing right? Is that a burden we're supposed to carry? We cannot. 
What about things like worry and anxiety? How am I gonna pay my bills? Am I gonna heal? You know, how, do I, how do I help my kid who's, who's going south and he's sinning and he doesn't live in my home anymore? I have no control there. Is that an anxiety or burden God wants us to carry? No, you can't do anything about that. And so we're supposed to take that and lay it upon God and we pray and then we trust in that prayer. We trust in the God of that prayer so that now I no longer allow that to weigh down my heart. Are we supposed to carry the weight of unforgiveness and carry that around us? Wow, I really hate this guy. Boy, I hope they suffer. And we just sit there in bitterness our whole life and we're burdened down by this thing. And it visibly shows when we're carrying that burden of bitterness. We're supposed to cast that upon God. Yes, people are gonna hurt you in life. Do we have to let it hurt us long term? No, we can let it go. We can roll it off on God, cast our anxiety on him because he cares for us. So we are to pray when we've been wronged by somebody, when we are suffering. Well, what about when life is good? He says, is any of you cheerful? This is a compound Greek word that literally means a good attitude. When you have an optimistic attitude, optimistic outlook on life, when things are going well for you, what are we supposed to do? He says, sing praise. What's praise? Praise is you know, when we sing and when we offer up uh, glory to God. You know, Our singing, by the way, is prayer, the Broadway musical. That's what prayer is. You know, when we praise, we're singing to God. We're not singing to Theron. We're not singing to the choir. Choir's not singing to you. We're all directing our praise upward. And so when we sing, that should be uh, words that we are working through our heart and we are offering up as a sacrifice for God to, to enjoy. And so let him praise. Lift up your praise to God. Can I tell you, for a lot of Christians, you know the hardest time to get Christians to pray? It's not when they're suffering. It's when life is good. Exodus chapter three, verse seven, when Israel is suffering under the taskmasters of Egypt and the sting of the whip is hitting their back, God says, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. By the way, when you're suffering, does God notice? He sees. He says, I saw when they were suffering, and here's what it is. He says, I have heard their cry. I heard them calling out to me in prayer. Because of their taskmaster, he says, I know they're suffering. When Israel was suffering, they prayed. They called out to God, God, send us a deliverer. Deliver us. We're hurting, Lord. And what did he do? He sent Moses to deliver them. Takes them through the wilderness. Things don't go too well there. Eventually, they enter the land, and they finally enter what that, the place that is called the land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the economy is good. And he gives them houses they didn't build and fields they didn't plant. And what did Israel do? He did what they said they would do in Deuteronomy 6. They forgot the Lord their God. The hardest time to get Christians to pray is when everything's going good, when you're happy in life. When I'm happy in life, I've got so many other things that you would just, fleshly speaking, rather be doing. I'd rather go out to the lake. Why go to the church? <laughs> you know, I'd rather do all these other things. I'd rather you know, just party it up. I'd rather... You know, I just want to enjoy the abundance of what I have. But sometimes when, we, when th we're cheerful because life is good and God has filled our life with blessing, it can lead to a sense of autonomy from God. Remember the man, the only man in the Bible God called fool? A little trivia question. Who's the only man God called fool personally in the Bible? It was that rich man who says, wow, I have so much, I need to build new barns. He says, I have many goods laid up for many years Eat, drink, and be merry. That's his idea. If I have a lot of goods, obviously I have a lot of time to enjoy them, and I'm gonna make my life about me and my enjoyment and what pleases me and what makes me happy, and I'm just gonna invest the rest of my retirement, if you will, on what makes me happy. And he became self-centered. What did God call him? Fool. Tonight, your soul is gonna be required of you. But that's what happens. When, we are, when, we're, when we're cheerful, when everything is good, the natural tendency of man is to forget the Lord our God, as it said in Deuteronomy 6, the God who led you out of Egypt. And so we gotta be careful that when life is good and we have a positive outlook on life, don't forget God. Remember James, this guy who's preaching on prayer today, also said, remember, every good and perfect gift that you have came from above, from the Father of lights. It came from him. So that's why Ephesians 6.18 says, we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. There's not a time when we shouldn't be constantly, daily, continually. The Bible even go on beyond that and say that we ought to pray without ceasing. 
Doesn't mean that we trip over things, you know, throughout life as we're praying, but just continually. We just have these little one-liner prayers that go off to God. We just constantly credit God with things. We thank God for that parking spot. We thank God for this, this child who came up and gave me a hug. We pray to God when, when something's going poorly at work and somebody treats you bad. And you know, God help me to have patience, be a good testimony, that I don't blow it here. You know, we pray consistently, continually. Well, number two, I want you to see that prayer is powerful in physical healing. Look at verse 14. This is the one everybody wanted to come here this morning for because we all have things that need healed. Let's face it. Verse 14, he says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, this word sick here actually does mean sick. It literally is referring to somebody who is infirmed. This word, this Greek word refers to somebody who's in bed. So we're not talking about like Uncle John's bunions and bursitis is acting up again, okay? We're talking about somebody who is down for the count. They are hurting, they are sick. They have some kind of long-term illness. What is that person supposed to do? They're supposed to call for the elders of the church to come and pray. Now, who are the elders of the church? Okay, the elders of the church, uh, remember there's three terms that talk about that role. It's a pastor, okay, these terms are used synonymously in the New Testament. A pastor describes his work that he feeds and protects the flock. He's an elder, he's an example to the flock, follows the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But also he's an overseer, an episcopos, someone who looks over, who helps guide and direct the, the strategy and the vision of the church. Those people that you elected, okay, by the way, notice, it's, is there more than one there? My Bible is elders, plural. There's elders, there's multiple elders within a church. I personally believe the biblical church governance is that you have multiple elders. Right now, you have Brad, myself, and Theron, but quite frankly, in the New Testament, you also had lay elders, those who weren't paid, who helped establish uh, this, this board, this group of people who helped govern and guide and direct the church. That's biblical church governance. Okay? But you got these godly people that you yourself have elected to represent you, and you're calling for them because you're sick. Why would you call them? Later on, you're going to see it's because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. But you're calling upon these elders for prayer. I never can quite understand when a person, a believer in particular, is suffering, and they're like, shh, shh, shh. keep this a secret. I don't want anybody to know that I'm sick. I've got to ask you with all the love of my heart, why do you do that? Why do you try to keep your illness a secret? When I was sick and I was literally dying of a gangrenous uh, infection in my belly in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and my family wasn't with me, I was calling for prayer. I didn't care who knew it. And my sweet wife, who is a rallier, called all these churches to pray for me. And she literally rallied, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands upon thousands of believers to pray for me. And I credit my healing from that to God and God alone. The fact that I am here preaching today is a testimony to the power of prayer. I should have died. I didn't. God healed. And it's because somebody called out for the elders of the church to pray. Let me also identify this. When you're sick and you need a pastoral visit, to pray for you, who ha where's the onus there? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that the, that the pastor is aware that you need a visit? Who's calling out for the prayer? Who's calling for the elders to come? Go ahead, look at your Bible. It's the one who's suffering. Guys, I'm gonna just gonna share with you, I'm not omniscient. You know, that may not be a terrible surprise to you guys. I don't know everything. I don't know when you're all hurting. I don't know when everybody's, I don't know. We have hundreds and hundreds of people that associate with this church. I don't know when you're in the hospital always. I don't always know when you're sick. I don't always know if it's serious, if you're going in for tonsils or if you're going in for you know, open heart surgery. I don't always know. How can I find out? You who are sick, don't assume. Call the church. If you want someone to visit, and some people don't want to visit. I've actually had folks tell me, I'm having a surgery. I don't want you there. It's okay, I'm good. Other people, they're like, I had a surgery three and a half months ago and you weren't there, you know? I don't know. How do, we, how do we make sure that the pastor comes and prays for the people who are having surgeries or sickness? Is anybody sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let's help each other here. We want to be there with you when you're suffering. We wanna be there to hold your hand. We wanna be there to share scripture with you, to encourage you, to pray with you. You gotta help us there. 
But then he mentions something a little mysterious. He says that he are to call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Now, in the English, we just have the one word anoint, okay? But in the Greek, we've got a couple of different words for anoint. Anointing just means to apply oil to someone for some circumstance. If you use the Greek word creo, it refers to a ceremonial anointing. Uh, if you were, use the word alepho, that's referring to a more pedestrian use, literally to rub oil into something for some purpose. They remember, they would use oil for a lot of different reasons back then. It was, very, it was vital to their culture. They would mix things into the oil and use it medicinally. Remember the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan? When this guy had wounds, what did the Good Samaritan combine do? He rubbed oil into his wounds. It was a medicinal use. And uh, sometimes they would use it just to freshen themselves up. Okay, and uh, in fact, Matthew six seventeen, the word alepho refers to hygiene. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Okay, so sometimes that oil, sometimes mixed with perfumes and things, would be used as kind of a sort of a deodorant back then, and it would keep you fresh and clean and healthy. So, which of those is being used here? Is it the ceremonial anointing? Or is it the more pedestrian, you know, practical anointing of oil? Now, if, if you come from a Roman Catholic or a number of Pentecostal circles, they're gonna tell you that this is a, cer a ceremonial anointing and you take oil and you rub a cross on their forehead. Is that what we're talking about here? If you study the passage, you're gonna find out the term used here is alepho. It is the pedestrian use of oil. It's the common use. It was the use that described when they used oil, uh, whether it's the Good Samaritan or it describes the time where they're, they're anointing their face with oil. Uh, it, just in a, in a hygienic sense, it refers, it's the term that was used of when they used oil and stuff and they rubbed into Jesus' body to prepare and anoint his body for burial. So when we're calling for the elders of the church, they are to pray and anoint him with oil. What does that mean? I believe it means that in those days in particular, he, they would give you first aid and spiritual aid. Do everything that they can for you physically and do everything they can for you spiritually at the same time. Why would the elders be doing this? You gotta understand this about the healthcare system. They didn't have KDMC back then. We don't have these little clinics that you can just walk up to. There's no place where we can just drop off your loved one and know that they've got good medical care. How was medical care handled back then? Much of the just day-to-day -day care of a person wasn't by nurses, who was it? Family, family took care of you. And when you're a, a hit by highwaymen on the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you were reliant just upon the goodness of strangers, okay? And they would take you home or they would take you to an inn. And if, if there was a healthcare professional available, they might provide some counsel. But as far as just daily care of that person's wounds and needs, that fell to family. Here's a problem. Back then, when you had Christianity was something very new and you had people who would trust in Jesus, what would often Jewish families do then and still do today? They disown you. Today, they will literally take your face on the, on the mantle, your picture, and they will turn it over. You are no longer my child. So now, when you get sick in the church, you're one of those who's following Jesus. You get sick, who's gonna take care of you? Family's not gonna do it now. Who's gonna have to do it? Your spiritual family. That's why we're calling for the elders of the church. They're leading and guiding in both the spiritual and physical aid of this individual. That as a church, you might be completely isolated from your personal physical family on earth. Guess what? You still have a family here. That's what he's saying. We take care of each other in the same kind of love and care that you would for blood relations, but it's deeper, it's spiritual relations. It's what the Bible says, that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's your church family. So is prayer gonna be powerful in this situation? Verse, uh, chapter five, verse 15, it says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. He wants you to see that do all that you can physically for him, but don't credit these people, these healers with your healing. Who is it that ultimately heals the body? It's God. You see, healthcare professionals, all they can do is provide an environment for healing, try not to hurt you further, try to prevent the spread of evil, but ultimately it's God through these bodies that he's given to us that heals us. And the Lord will raise him up. I want you to see number three here, that prayer is powerful in spiritual healing. Without even taking a breath, James continues to talk about the one who is physically sick. 
He says in verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, hang on, James. Come on, give the guy a break. He's suffering here. He's infirmed. He's in the hospital. He's hurting. And now you're talking to the brother about sin? Why are you associating sickness with sin? It's because the Bible does. Is every sickness due to sin? No, it's not. That's why James, you can circle that word in your Bible. He says, if. Just because someone's on the prayer list here doesn't mean we go, well, I wonder what he's been doing. (laughs) But sometimes sickness is related to sin. That's why this is associated so closely with it. If he has sinned, committed sins, he will be forgiven. The idea is through the sickness, you came to a place of turning to God in prayer and repented. And that sickness will be cared for. What he's letting us know is that it's very appropriate for a believer every single time you go through trial, every single time you go through sickness and suffering of some way, it's appropriate for the believer to turn their eyes to God and say, God, are you trying to get my attention? That's the appropriate response of a believer. When we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're sick, we go to God. Remember Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, in the day of prosperity rejoice. We turn to God. Are you cheerful? Sing praise. But he says, in the day of adversity, what are we supposed to do? Stop and consider. Think about this. God created both days, both days for a reason. God, what possible reason could you have for me suffering in this way? What possible reason could you have for sickness? Is there something I'm doing in my life that I shouldn't, that I've been excusing? Is there something I should be doing, but I've just put it off and I've ignored it? An area of obedience in my life that I should be doing. Are you trying to get my attention through this suffering? Is this sickness due to my own sins? Is that possible? And of course, we know that's possible. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We examine ourselves. Search my heart, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. That's what we do. He says some people won't do that. Some people are going to be like, yeah, let me get over this religious ritual and move on to what I really want to do today. He says some people won't examine their heart for sin, and they're going to continue in sin. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Because they don't examine their heart for sin. And they just live habitually in sin, thinking that because God did not judge it immediately, that God will never judge my sin. God will judge. Just because God is patient doesn't mean he doesn't notice or that he won't ultimately judge our sin. In fact, uh, just a couple weeks ago, we preached about uh, the man who is a paralytic. He takes up his bed on the Sabbath, naughty man, and he carries his bed and the religious leaders are accusing him of working on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus finds him later in the temple and says, see that you are well. But then right after that, what did Jesus tell this guy? He says, go and sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. See, Jesus identified this man's suffering because of his sins, whatever that may have been. God gave you a 38-year warning, don't keep on sinning lest something worse come upon you, that you go to hell. You would wish for that 38 years on a bed mat compared to hell. So Jesus identified this man was suffering because of his sin. Will God even take our life for that? Yeah, 1 John 5 talks about there is sin that leads to death. Now, what if you have a believer who is suffering and they're sick because of their sin? If they turn to God in that time of sickness for repentance, will God heal him? That's why it says, therefore, because of this sickness, therefore, because of the sin, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Remember, God doesn't enjoy taking us to the woodshed and, and, and causing physical pain in his children's lives, but he'll do it. He'll do it. He loves us too much to let us go on sinning. But that same passage, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, talking about that uh, if we don't examine ourselves, this is why some of you are sick and dead. But if we look two verses later, he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we stop lying to ourselves excusing away our sin, telling, why it's, you know, telling God why we deserve to do that or why it's really not sin in my situation. He says, if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged of God. God doesn't want to deliver pain to us. He wants to bless us. But if we're doing something wrong, God is not a lazy parent. He will take us to the woodshed. You want to see a scriptural example of this? I want to share with you briefly 
To me, the most impacting story I've ever read on prayer in the answer to prayer and how powerful prayer is and how it works. I want you to read this story and I just want you to be amazed at how powerful prayer can be, even if you're living in sin. It goes from the example of King Hezekiah. You guys heard of King Hezekiah? He was one of those few good kings of Judah. By the way, the northern kingdom had zero good kings. The southern kingdom had very few. Hezekiah was one of the, if you will, the good guys. He did a lot of good things. He rebuilt the temple, you know, he repaired it and things. He reinstituted the Passover celebration. He tore down the pagan altars. Remember in the book of Numbers 2 when Israel was complaining about their leaders and God sent fiery serpents and they had to look at a bronze serpent on a pole? Well, guess what? Years later, Israel started worshiping that as a god. I think that's why God doesn't let us find the Ark of the Covenant and other religious things because he knows there would be a church to that somewhere. So he broke and destroyed that pole. And so this is a good guy who's done a lot of good things for God. He started out life really, really well. He started out life on fire for God, like many of us. You got saved at a young age, and you start out, and you're on fire for God. You know, I'm, I can't wait to hear all the stories of the camp and stuff that you guys have to share. But you're on fire for God in your youth, and you're, you're tearing down the bad things, and you're building up the good things in your life. Well, over time, Hezekiah got to a place where he got proud. Is pride a sin? It's the original sin. I would go one step further to say that every sin arises out of pride. There's a reason in the book of Psalms that God categorizes all lost people as the proud, the insolent. Because out of that sense of, that personal sense of, of pride that I'm better and bigger than I really think I am, every other sin arises out of that. Well, King Hezekiah was lifted up with pride in 2 Kings chapter 20. It says, at that time, Barodak Baladan sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah listened to them. Can you imagine those letters? Oh, Hezekiah, you're great. You're the greatest king since Solomon. And it's true, he was. You got so much money, you got so much power, you're even good looking. He's like, thank you very much, you know. And uh, he's listening to this and he starts getting lifted up with pride. And so this guy gets invited in. And it says, he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the house of his armor, all his treasuries. It says, there was nothing in his house or his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. What's Hezekiah doing there? He brings in a king from a foreign land to come in and he takes him on a tour. Have you seen my collection of this? Ah, uh -huh, but have you seen how much money I have? Oh, but look over here. Look at all this armor and the horses and things. I know, I know. It, it's, it's, it's really great too. I, I, it, let me show you over here. Don't, don't miss this over here. And it says there's nothing in his house that he didn't show him. It's pride. Now we recognize that in little children, we accept it when kids are like, hey, look at this, look at mommy, look what I did, look what I, look what I can do, look at this, look at this, you know, and, and, we, and, and they're just, they're proud, they're, they just want attention they, because they're immature. But as adults, sometimes we don't outgrow that. Now we're probably not balancing on one leg, showing people what we can do, but we, we bring them to our house and like King Hezekiah, we go, behold, look at all I have. And we're trying to gain significance from our things rather than significance from our identity in Christ. And God calls that pride sin. When we try to inflate how we look to other people, that's not a healthy thing. Is God gonna judge that in King Hezekiah's life? He absolutely will. In fact, pretty seriously. It says in 2 Chronicles, by the way, Chronicles and Kings are parallel accounts. One looks from a purely historical perspective of the period of the Kings. The Chronicles looks at the, the spiritual significance of the things going on during the period of the Kings. So in this parallel account, it talks about in those days, Hezekiah became sick, was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord and answered him and gave him a sign, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, and his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. So there's pride in Hezekiah's life, and he's just not learning this lesson. Can I show you, by the way, the the sign that God gave him. If you look at 2 Kings 20, verse one, uh, King Hezekiah, full of pride, God sends Isaiah to him and says, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and you shall not recover. Do we need to do a Hebrew study on that? Anybody, everybody understand what it means that you're gonna die and you're not going to recover? He's saying you're gonna die and I'm not just giving this as a threat, it's really going to happen. That's a pretty serious response to this man's pride. 
But like I said, in 1 Kings 5.16, it says there is sin that leads to death. That at some point in time, God's patience for that sin is complete, and he will simply bring us home. If you won't deal with that sin in your life, I'll take, I'll take your flesh away from you, and you will be like me. So Hezekiah is confronted this, with this sin. How is he going to deal with that? Somebody points out sin in his life. Is he going to defend it? Is he going to excuse it? Is he going to explain to him why it's really not sin in his life? Nah. Verse two, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, now Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Why is he weeping? Because Hezekiah is catching himself. Hezekiah is looking back on his life and he's remembering, when I was a young guy, I was on fire for you, Lord, remember that. You remember the time when I rebuilt your temple and, and, and repaired it? Remember when I reinstituted the Passover and I destroyed the idols and I even destroyed that bronze staff that people were worshiping? Remember, God, when I was on fire for you and then he, it starts to dawn on him, I'm no longer that guy. Now I'm Hezekiah, the proud guy who thinks that he is where he is because of me. And he wept bitterly. Is there anybody here today who can come to that place? I think we all sometimes come to that place where when we were younger, we, maybe we were a youth and we were on fire for God. Or maybe we were a young man, young woman, and we were on fire for God when we were our younger years, but then life takes over. And we disappear, and, and those kind of things disappear. Our good habits disappear. Our quiet times disappear. Our prayer becomes just, uh, dear God, help me pay the bills. And we, we stop seeking God and worshiping him passionately. This is where Hezekiah found himself, and he weeps bitterly before the Lord in repentance. Will God relent in his judgment if his people will turn and repent? Let's find out. Verse four, and before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, he is still leaving the brother's house. The word of the Lord came to him and said, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, look at these words, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears, and behold, I will heal you. What grace. Let me ask you this. Was God lying the first time that he sent Isaiah to him when he said, you're gonna die and not recover? Was that a lie? If, Isaiah, or if, if Hezekiah had not prayed, what would have happened to Hezekiah? He would have died. What happened between Hezekiah being told he's gonna die, and by the way, not recover, so give up all hope, and... I'm going to heal you. There's one thing that stood in between that. What was it? It was prayer. God himself says, this is absolutely gonna happen in your life. Hezekiah prays, and then what do we see? He spins Isaiah on his heels while he's still in the middle court and says, go back to him and let him know I'm gonna heal him. Tell me, is prayer powerful? I don't understand all the theology of that prayer. I'm telling you, God is too great for me. All I see here as just, a, as just a fellow human here is that you have a guy who's told he's gonna die, he prays, and then he's told he's not gonna die. I wonder sometimes, friends, how many times we don't have something because we just aren't praying for it. What does James 4 say? You don't have because you don't ask. That sometimes we just don't have things in our life because we're not, not looking to God. We're not lifting up to prayer and saying, God, this is an impossible situation but I, I need you to intervene here. And we turn our thoughts to him. He wants us today to see the power of prayer. Now, having heard the prayer of Hezekiah, I want you to look back at James. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is what our God does. You might be suffering today and sick because of your sin. You might be. How do we stop that? We turn to God like Hezekiah. We turn our face to the wall and we repent. And we recall where we used to be as a Christian and we, we desire to return back to that where we're, we're following God, we're loving God, we're, we're living as obediently as we know how. Number four, and finally here, I want you to see that prayer is powerful. I already gave you one example of what powerful prayer looks like. Book of verse 16, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What kind of prayer has great power as it's working? The prayer of who? A righteous man. 
So he's making a qualification. He doesn't just say prayer is powerful. So we have this little guy over here praying for pagan things, this guy over here praying for carnal fleshly things. He's not saying that it has equal power. There's a, there's a power to prayer that comes from a person who's living righteously. Righteous just means that we're living in conformity with God's standards. God says this, I'm living this way. Righteous. No, didn't say perfect. But anytime you see that I got a little bit off, you're like, God, course correct me. When that person prays, James says, it's powerful. By the way, it's why you call for the elders of the church. Hopefully the elders of your church are people who are walking with God, living righteously. And so you call upon them to pray because you know their prayers are powerful because they're coming from someone whose heart is righteous. Why is a righteous person's prayers powerful? Because they're praying for what God wants. Carnal people don't pray for what God wants. They don't even care what God wants. They want their will to be done and they want to manipulate God to do their will. But Jesus taught us to pray a while back that we're to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how righteous people pray. They pray according to the will of God. How do fleshly carnal people pray? God, just give me what I want. That's why James 4 says, you, he says, you ask amiss, you ask wrongly so that you can just consume that prayer upon your own lust. It's why in James 1, he says, that person is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And he says, don't let that man expect to receive anything from the Lord. Are all men's prayers equally powerful? I'm here to tell you scripturally, no. James says the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Are there any verses in the Bible that talk about ungodly people's prayers not being powerful? I can give you several. I'll just give you a couple. Okay. First Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, okay? He's attentive to what they're doing, and his ears are open to their prayer. What does that mean? It's an anthropomorphism of God, that God is listening and responding to the prayers of what kind of person? The righteous, those who care about what God thinks, care enough to change their life to live according to the Bible. His ears are open to their prayers. What about the prayers of the unrighteous? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The idea is a battle line has been drawn and God with shield in hand and spear in hand is opposing you, your life, and your prayer. Because why? You're not praying according to God's will. You don't want God's will to be done. You don't want his kingdom to come. You want your will to be done. And God says, I don't answer those kind of prayers. They're selfish, carnal, worldly prayers. You have to be submitted to me first to be able to see answers to prayer. His face is against those who do evil. Are there any other verses that talk about that? I'll give you one. This is real practical here, and it's a tough one. <laughs> Does sin really weaken our prayers? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, likewise, husbands, uh-oh, marriage. Okay, it means we've all failed in this area, so don't, don't feel bad that you're feeling guilty. We all feel guilty here. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, that you're a student of your wife, that you understand, by the way, that she's different than you are. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, let's pause there for just a second. We talk, talk about showing honor. The man is to show honor to his wife. That means he doesn't make his marriage and his life and his family all about him. You're a couple that's figure skating together, and you might be the bigger, stronger man, but what does the big, strong man do in the figure skating? He lifts up the woman, and where are your eyes looking? You're not looking at that, that boring, plain, ugly dude. You're looking at this beautiful, pretty girl who's all decked out and did her hair all nice and pretty, and, and all the attention is upon her, and the man doesn't care because that's his role. He's lifting up and honoring his wife. He's, he's laying down his life for her. He is selfless. That's what it means to lead a woman. You're selfless. You give of your life to her and you try to understand her, understand that she's different, not just physiologically, but emotionally. So you don't treat her like you do one of your buddies down at the machine shop. You don't talk to her the same way that you would your, you know, your younger brother. You talk to her in a sweet and gentle way. Why? Because she's a weaker vessel. That doesn't mean less valuable. It means Tupperware versus fine china. God's talking about Tupperware husbands who can take a hit sometimes and he wants to treat his wife that way. You try, go ahead, and take, a, take fine china to work, men, and when you're done taking a, you know, drinking out of that, you just throw that in the bottom of your pickup, see what it does. You can do that with Tupperware. Can you do that with china? No, you can't. You treat it differently. It, it's not less valuable, it's actually more valuable. But it's constitutionally made of something different, and you treat it well. What if you have a man who doesn't treat his wife well, treats her poorly, honors himself, 
and shatters that beautiful vessel that is his wife, what does God promise him? He says that your husbands are to be dwelling with them in an understanding way, showing honor to her since she is an heir with you in the grace of life so that what? Your prayers may not be hindered. So if I'm living in sin in my marriage, are you saying that has a direct result on whether or not my prayers are answered by God? That's what the scripture says. In particular here, I think the, the, the main prayer being hindered is your prayer for her to be a believer if she's an unbeliever. But your prayers are hindered. This, is a, this word hindered means to be broken off, that there's no power to it, like removing a branch from a tree. Those leaves will wither and it will never bear fruit again. You're, you're separated from the source of power. When you're living in sin, you are, your, your prayers are separated from the source of power. It's like my Boyd County water a couple weeks back. Went to turn on the water, nothing. I expected water, I expected power, I expected refreshment, I expected life. What did I get? Empty. I was a little bit nervous. He's saying that's what it is. Sometimes you have ungodly people and then they go to turn on the spigot of prayer and they expect a gushing, refreshing flow of water to come out and there's just nothing there. Your, your prayers are isolated from their source of power because you're living an ungodly life. The ears of the Lord are open unto the prayers of the righteous. The, power, the prayers of a righteous man, it says, accomplish much. Let me just throw this one in, this little bit free of charge too, by the way. When it talked about the prayer of faith will heal the sick, did you know it has nothing to do with the prayer of the person being healed? A lot of times you watch TBN, some of these faith healers. Why can't Benny Hinn heal your cancer? He'll tell you, you don't have enough faith, right? The prayer of faith will heal the sick. Well, you didn't have enough faith. You just needed to believe more, so it's all on you. In that context, who was the one praying, by the way? Was it the person sick? No, he just called for the elders to pray for him. And the prayer of the faith, the faithful, those who are walking with God, those who are righteous, will heal the sick. So if you got a faith healer and somebody's not getting healed, it's not the faith of the person, it's the faith of the person praying. So don't let somebody bully you into that. By the way, don't go to those faith healers. You're not, Bob didn't call you to go to faith healers when you're sick. What are you supposed to do? You're disappointing me here heavily. I'm gonna stop. We're gonna start this sermon all over again. Back up three pages. When you're sick, you're supposed to, don't go to Benny Hinn, don't go to some faith healer. What do you do? You go to God. How? By inviting the elders of the church to come and pray for you doing everything that they can, but you pray and you trust that the Lord will raise up the one who is sick. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. But when we say the prayer of faith, we're talking about the faithful. Those who are righteous, their prayers have much power as they're working. And he gives us one last example, and we're gonna close here. He says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It's important we hear that. It means he's just like you and me. He gets two things. You know, he has to mow his lawn, okay? He's a normal guy, but he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prays again, what happens? He, the earth gave rain, and it bore its, the earth bore its fruit. You wanna read about that story? Go to 1 Kings 17, we don't have time today. We hear these great stories of prayer in the Bible, and a lot of times we relegate people like Elijah, and we put him up there with like, you know, Superman and, and Hercules and some of these, these unearthly figures, like, well, yeah, Elijah can pray that way. Why was Elijah's prayers answered? Because he was a righteous man. Do you want powerful prayers answered? Live a righteous life. And then you're gonna know how to pray well. And you're gonna pray in the will of God. And you're gonna pray your will be done, your kingdom come. You're gonna pray for what God wants you to, and God will answer that prayer. Can we still get results like Elijah got here? that if we prayed within the will of God and God's will was that we should pray that it won't rain, do you believe that it wouldn't rain? Remember, it says he had a nature like ours. It's not in the power of the person, okay? We live a righteous life, we pray for God's will to be done, but remember, the power of our prayers is the, to the God to whom we're praying. Has God changed? Nope, James told us he's the father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. He's what we theologically call immutable, unable to mutate. God can't change. Is God still just as powerful then as he is, or today as he was then? Yes, he is. So therefore, when we pray to God, can we expect great things from God in so much as even to withhold rain? Yes. What about, I don't know, this would be crazy, if we pray for God to overturn Roe versus Wade, could God do that? Yes, and he did. But it begins with us believing in prayer. So let me just ask you this. Do you believe in prayer? 
I know you're all gonna say yes. I mean, is there really a believer here who's like, yeah, I don't really think so. I mean, it makes me feel good and all, but I don't really believe in prayer. Every believer here probably says they believe in prayer. I don't wanna ask that question because sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking we believe in prayer and we don't. Here's the test of whether or not we believe in prayer. Do you pray? And I don't mean, dear God, thank you for this grilled chicken salad here at uh, Chick-fil-A. I don't mean that kind of prayer. I don't mean now I lay me down to sleep prayers. I mean, do you believe in prayer so as to pray? And you pray and you lift up your wife and you lift up your kids and you lift up your church and you pray for those who are sick and you just, your life is filled continually with prayer. That person believes in prayer. If you believe in prayer, you pray. If you don't believe in prayer, you don't pray. It really is that simple. Why? Because prayer is way too powerful that if, to say you believe in it but don't pray, it doesn't line up. And so I wanna ask you as we're closing out our series on prayer, friends, have I successfully convinced you in the power of prayer? I hope I have. And you don't have to convince me, you gotta convince God. And how we do that is we simply pray. My goal is that we will go out from this church and we'll be a praying church. That every single day, are you cheerful? Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you sick? Pray but let's, let's believe in the God that we're praying to that he is still the God of, of Elijah, still the God of Isaiah, still the God of Moses, and the power of our prayers are based solely upon God's power, not our own. So let's start praying for big things. Let's believe God for greater things. And let's live lives of faith and live lives of prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning as we have studied prayer. It's my sincerest heart and desire that I have convinced ourselves through the word of God, more importantly, the Holy Spirit has convinced our hearts to believe in prayer enough that we'll pray. God, I fully acknowledge that there is nothing here in my ability to be able to lead this church well. There's nothing in my ability to be able to bring about real positive impact and change in our community apart from your strength and your power, Lord. So that's why we're gonna pray. We give thanks for the answers to prayer that we've already seen. We give we just offer up our uh, continued prayers for those who are suffering, those who are sick. But God, as the disciples says, help my unbelief. God, the reason we don't pray is because we don't truly believe in prayer. Help our unbelief. Help us to read God's word, your word, and to, to see all the answers to prayer that are there and to believe in it enough that we might actually start praying for ourselves. Not just because prayer is expected at a certain circumstance in our life, not just to pray because uh, it's a last ditch, lucky rabbit's foot resort. Not just to pray because it makes us feel good, but God help us to pray because we genuinely believe that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe is listening and that his ears are open to our prayers. God, I pray that we as a church would live righteously, that we would care what you think about our life, that we would live righteously to the point where we understand what your will is, that we would pray in accordance to your will, that we would pray submitted unto you, that we might actually see answers to prayer as a church. We ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.